Like that, that sort of like very quick movement from place to place can only be accomplished through some uh, really imaginative work um, that both the playwright has done and the production team has done. everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are so excited to be back for another week, another conversation about another great play. Yes, yes, it's so good to be able to uh, continue having these conversations with all of you out there in podcast land and continue to engage new scripts. Every once in a while I'm like, oh man, it's so cool that there's just this constant stream of new scripts, new playwrights, and this play is no exception. This is a brand new script to me, brand new brand new playwright to me and the podcast. We are talking today about She Kills Monsters by Kui Gwen. Yeah, this will be a really fun conversation because this is one of those plays that kind of took the cultural landscape by storm, partially because it features D&D prominently, partially because it's got strong female protagonists, which, despite all of the efforts out there, is still an underrepresented group in the American theater, yep. frustratingly. Uh, so, so for a lot of reasons, this play kind of uh, swept the world, so much so that several different versions of it were created for different contexts, as I'm sure Jackson will tell you about here early in the episode. Episode and I, I, that's one of the few things that I've I've not seen a lot of in the theater. I mean, I, I know that for some musicals there are like young or junior versions of the musicals released so that uh, high schools or really more like middle schools or lower uh, could perform them like like Honk and Honk Junior that kind of thing but I this the sort of way that this script has developed into multiple versions and branches uh, I think suggests something about how many people are interested in this story and in this telling of it yeah, it is. It kind of is indicative of a lot of cultural movements and kind of hits the heartstrings, I think, of a lot of people. It's set in a it's set in uh, in the context of a high school and a lot of the kind of emotions that that pour into uh, uh, some versions of of uh, Dungeons and Dragons are tied very much into the the uh, experiences of high school. And yeah, yeah, it's just full of those rich themes and rich through lines um, that people can identify with, laugh with, and cry with. So I'm excited to, to, to be able to talk about it. And also just like fantastical elements too, you know, it just features monsters and swords right. and spells that are cast and dragons that are fought. That'll be fun for us to talk about. Very different than anything we've talked about so it's far true. this season. So that's <laughs> great. Before we hop into that conversation, though, it's time for us to remind you that upcoming is our themed month for season eight. It is just a few scant weeks away. And boy, it's going to be a good one. We are talking about four plays by the American powerhouse playwright David Henry Huang. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to get to uh, get back into some of David Henry Huang's plays, get to do a little bit more of them. We've talked about him a couple times on the show for sure, but uh, but yeah, it's exciting to get to spend a whole month on that. So get excited for that. Kind of buckle in for uh, for a month of of similar themed at least, or at least as maybe not even similar themed, but uh, written of this by the same playwright. So yeah, same same playwriting voice, right? I mean, he, yeah. he's got a sense of the world that he communicates through the art that he makes, and and that sense of the world will be interesting 
interesting to identify through uh, through the four different scripts that we'll do. Now, we, we've already talked about his play Yellowface, so that will not make an appearance in our themed month, despite the fact that I just think that play is incredible and amazing. Uh, but we will be doing four of his other plays, which will also be fantastic, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So get excited for that and uh, kind of get uh, uh, get warned, get by the play. Get or warned. You're warned. Get, get warned. You've been given notice. Not yes. threatened, just warned. <laughs> yeah, we're excited <laughs> to get to spend the month with that, and I hope that you all are as well. Absolutely. And now it's time for us to remind you of the second thing, which is to visit our Patreon page. If you haven't already done so, please consider it. Patreon is how we support the running of this podcast. It's, it's frankly how the podcast continues to be able to live in its eighth season. Jackson and I love to do it. It's a privilege, but it does take a significant investment on our parts, both of finances and time and brain space, as both of us are graduate students at moment. So we're not, uh, we don't have an abundance of those things. Finances, time, or brain space, frankly. <laughs> so uh, Patreon makes this something that we're able to continue to do now for eight seasons. So patreon.com slash podcast. Over there you sign up, you send a monthly amount. I think by this point most people know how Patreon works. Uh, our, our tiers are, I think, really low, really reasonable. One dollar a month is the lowest tier and it goes up for there. And, and, and really that one dollar a month is I hope affordable for those of you out there and also very useful to us. So please consider it. You get some advantages, some perks or whatever they call them over on Patreon. Uh, we release the scripts that are coming out earlier to the folks over there. Uh, we sometimes post about art that we've seen or productions of scripts that we've talked about over there. At certain levels, we love to shout you out on the podcast. You can check all of that out over there. But the, the biggest thing, I think, is just to know that the folks that are currently contributing on Patreon, they make doing the podcast possible. So thank you to those of you who are giving financially to support this podcast. We don't we don't really do anything to to generate money by the podcast. We're not running ads on it. Um, we're not uh, you know uh, uh, giving our our voices to different products and trying to hawk them on the podcast. I mean, we're not doing anything <laughs> like that. This is a passion project. We love to talk about scripts and Patreon makes it possible. So please consider it patreon.com slash no script podcast and and for those of you who've already done so and are supporting us, a big, big, big thank you as always. Yes, thank you all so, so much. Means a lot. We'll see you over at patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to the script. We've been a little more equitable in that this it's season. It's been a I little felt. bit I mean, more. I'd have to go back and check. I can't remember this. We're only you know so many episodes in, but it feels like there's a little more give and take on that. <laughs> it's true. I don't we, know we... if that's the future or if I'm just going to reclaim my autocratic control. <laughs> right the, from the shadows, the you script. will rise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're going to jump into the context of the play just a little bit, give you some context for both the playwright and the play itself. As we mentioned, the play is She Kills Monsters by Hui Gwyn. Uh, Gwyn has been a uh, playwright for a while, a TV film writer. He's also an artistic director and a stage choreographer and all sorts of things. Dude so is <laughs> mega talented. His play Viet Gone kind of swept mm -hmm. the nation more recently than this one. I mean, just crazy awesome guy. 
Yeah, yeah. He 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 runs the Vampire Cowboys Theater Company, um, which is I believe a New York based theater company. And those and the many productions that 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 uh, company puts on has won lots of awards um, for for both uh, movement and fight direction and and all sorts of things. So so a pretty uh, really fun kind of pushing the edge sort of uh, theater company that he's been a part of. He's also uh, so he's written plenty of plays. Um, certainly the one we're talking about today, um, Viet Gone, uh, Vampire Vampire Cowboy. Boy Trilogy is another one of his plays that he's written, um, but he's also a screenwriter, a, pro- a fairly prolific one, too. Um, uh, he worked on, uh, if you watch the recent movie, Raya and the Last Dragon, he worked on the script for that along with Adele Lim, and he's currently working on another Disney film for 2022, Strange World. So uh, he's he's a prolific writer. He, he writes for, I believe he writes uh, even some Marvel Comics work as well. So uh, all over the place uh, for for uh, of his writing that you can that you can find. Um, as far as this play goes, She Kills Monsters was off off Broadway at the Flea Theater in New York in November fourth of two thousand eleven. That production ran until uh, December, pretty short run. And then two years later, it was done at the Steppenwolf uh, Company in April of twenty thirteen. Um, the first production was directed by Robert Ross Parker, and then the the production at Steppenwolf was directed by Scott Weinstein. Both plays uh, got very good reviews, and then it really came alive in the uh, uh, theater education world. Lots of colleges have done it. I think something like over 800 productions of this play have happened since uh, as of July 2020. Uh, between so that's like that's like what is that eight years I think eight years eight hundred productions that, that's a lot of yeah. I, I cannot emphasize enough how many individual productions of this play that is I mean that is enormous mm-hmm. a number for and just how uh, how relevant and, and just how present this play has been you probably know the title at the very least I know that for a long time I knew that there was a play called She Kills Monsters that everybody loved and I didn't know what it was until the day that I finally read it yeah yeah and and par- partially due to the fact so certainly the resonance of the themes and partially due to the fact that this that uh, that Gwyn has been pretty uh, um, adaptable with this script. This script has been adapted <laughs> yeah. for high school uh, th- uh, theater productions. It has a separate script specifically for high schoolers. has a separate script uh, specifically for the online world in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was adapted to be sure that it can uh, you know, present on a Zoom format or something like that. Um, so yeah, the, the play, but, but it's also just a deeply rich play um, with a lot of great themes. He wrote the play for a friend of his whose name was Chuck. Chuck is a prominent uh, character in the play um, who, who who is a dungeon master in the play. His friend Chuck was a dungeon master and helped him through a lot of his high school experience. So it just has a really deep, rich themes to it. And I'm excited to get to jump into some of those themes as we turn to the synopsis. Yeah, and, and so we, as you know, as we do, we look up sort of the, the stories in the world around the play to try to present a little bit of that too. And it, you know, it's come to our attention, we'll speak in the most general ways possible, that there have been instances in which productions of this play have been canceled, especially at the high school level, because characters in this play are a part of the LGBTQ community. And that's ridiculous. I mean, the, the, that's yeah. the point of view of this podcast. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. That's uh, shameful and hurtful. This is a fantastic play with relevant issues, real characters going through real things. The idea that LGBTQ issues shouldn't be part of the stage or aren't appropriate for high schoolers to deal with and to, to, uh, to, to bring to life as part of a production is wrong. It's, it's just flat out wrong. So we want to we say it on the front end because we know 
that that controversy has somewhat existed surrounding this script. Yeah, it's been pretty recently that the script has been going through some of those controversy, and it's been particularly encouraging to see the community around the script rally yes. around it. There's been GoFundMe campaigns that raise money like almost immediately to yeah. continue to do the production, if it even if it has to be outside the high school. So yes, um, very glad that the community continues to rally around this script and and enable high schoolers and an all number of people to engage these themes, engage these themes, and offer representation for LGBTQ actors and LGBTQ theater. Absolutely. So, given that, let's just talk briefly about the kind of general overview plot synopsis as we do. She Kills Monsters is about a relatively new high school teacher named Agnes. She's in her early 20s. I would assume we are to believe this is sort of her first job out of college. She is teaching at the high school where her sister went. And I say went not because she's graduated, but because she's died as of the sort of immediate uh, present of the play. And there's the prologue section, which gives us this plot in a kind of sort of book, comic book, D&D style narrative uh, uh, description. Um, Agnes lost her whole family. Her sister and her parents were killed in a car crash just before the action of the play. Um, Agnes and her sister, this the sister that, that passes before the action play, the sister's name is Tilly. And um, that they, they didn't really get along. Tilly is described in the prologue as being sort of a mega geek, right? Huge into fantasy, um, imagination, writing. Of course, they discovered D&D, that kind of thing. And that's just not Agnes's personality at all. In fact, she's embarrassed by it. And then, of course, when this tragedy occurs, that leaves a hole because she felt like she never really got to know her sister uh, because of this sort of gulf in cultures between the two and in... Uh, and in interests. So what happens to drive the action of the play is that Agnes discovers as she's cleaning out the house where her family used to live, she discovers a uh, a D&D game description, basically. It's a map. It's a description of plot and characters. If you've played D&D, both Jackson and I have, we're sort of familiar with how the framework of the structure yeah. might be captured in a storybook format for a dungeon master to use to run the game. Yeah, just a whole module laid out, all the characters laid out, and yet when she's approaching it, it's 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 admittedly very confusing. Um, if you've never approached one before, so she yeah, she, she has yeah. she has no idea what to do with it. But she goes to see a guy who runs a local game store. This is Chuck, uh, and says, "What the heck is this?" And Chuck says, "Your sister was Tilly. Tilly's like a legend, yo. Tilly is crazy. This is, she's like the best D She's so creative. She's like, every, apparently she has." inspired the uh, board gaming and, and live gaming community of this town where the play takes place. It's uh, Ohio, um, and uh, a lot of the play takes place in the actual D&D world, but otherwise it's a small town in Ohio. I love the two names of the two towns, Athens, Ohio. Right. Like that, that already kind of leads us into some like, ooh, maybe a little Olympian. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the D&D world is Newlandia. So yes. there's some, <laughs> some, some delightful naming of places there. So as a as a way to I guess get to know this sister that is lost to help deal with the grief of losing this family, Agnes decides alongside with Chuck's help to play the D&D campaign that her sister wrote and created especially for her. That's the other thing is that this D&D module isn't just some random one that Tilly created. It's very specifically aimed at Agnes at communicating something to her. I don't think we're led to believe that Tilly knew she was going to die in some 
pre uh, preordained uh, psychic way. It's just that yeah. she was attempting to tell her something with this DD module, and unfortunately, she passed. So Agnes is going to try to grasp what that was by playing out the DD campaign. The DD campaign leads them into a fantasy world narrated by Chuck, but with full actors, actors who come out to play the characters in the campaign. Uh, Tilly is a character. She's a very powerful sort of warrior character in the script. Um, and then there is, uh, help me, Jackson, Cali, Cali, Calliope? Calliope, Calliope. Calliope, oh my gosh, we were doing this We were talking before the show. I was like, I always read Calliope as Calliope. Calliope and uh, Lilith, and then a whole host of sort of bad guy characters, monsters, orcs, demons, dragons, that they fight within the context of this campaign. So basically the campaign is they have to recover Tilly's character's lost soul by fighting through a whole horde of monsters. And all of these monsters are sort of real-life people from Tilly's life that have manifested themselves in the campaign some way. For example, um, uh, as we learn later in the play, Tilly was a closeted member of the LGBTQ community, and she was relentlessly teased for uh, for sort of who she was, both as a geek, but also from this sort of uh, suspicion and accusations of being a lesbian in her high school. So several of the bully characters appear in the course of the script, um, as well as Agnes's, this is our protagonist, remember, her boyfriend Miles, who apparently learned through the course of the campaign to Tilly sort of felt like stole Agnes from her as a sister. He appears as a bad guy in the campaign. Um, it, it goes on and on, right? That kind of stuff. At the same time, uh, Agnes is, has a friend, Vera, who's a guidance counselor at the high school who provides her some advice, but really more specifically provides Miles some advice. Miles, Agnes' boyfriend, comes in on Agnes, his girlfriend, and this random guy he's never met before, Chuck, doing something secret and shameful by Agnes's perspective uh, that she doesn't want to tell him about in this house where her family used to live. And of course, Miles assumes that he's cheating on her. There's some sort of word play around like what dungeon master might mean, what role, role playing. playing. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right, right, right. So um, there's that kind of, I, I think it's a sort of a subplot that Miles thinks that she's <laughs> having an affair basically um, and kind of runs around trying to figure out what the heck is going on. He eventually finds out and joins the campaign. What really ultimately happens is that Agnes learns something that she never knew about her sister, which is that her sister was gay. Um, and that we don't exactly know that may that may have been one of the purposes of creating this D&D module was to communicate to her or to help bring Agnes into the things that Tilly was interested in. Um, but the end of the script is sort of this sense of uh, learning, a bridging that gap a little bit between her and her unfortunately departed sister. There's some movement in Miles and Agnes's relationship too that is resolved by the script. That's kind of the general overview of the plot. There's a lot of sort of specific cool moments um, when all of the other characters in the campaign, for example, become the bad guys there to take on. They were sort of traitor characters all along there to take on uh, Agnes when Agnes and Tilly come together to defeat the bully characters together. I mean, there's lots of those kinds of moments. Yeah, yeah. It's a really fast, the, the, the kind of fascinating element of having... Um, Agnes be a teacher at the school where uh, Tilly went to um, is, is just a really interesting way to sort of bring out a lot of this plot because she meets a lot of the people who were Tilly's friends 
in her role as a teacher. Agnes is apparently, at, you know, at least at least five years older, at least enough time to have. Um, I mean, you I, know, I think she's like eight years old. Quite a I bit. Yeah. Tilly's a mid teenager, although it's the timeline of what happened when is a little unclear to me, but quite a bit older. Yeah. Yeah, enough enough that she's a teacher at the school and able to teach Tilly's contemporaries. Um, so you so you meet uh, Kelly, who you find out uh, played uh, Calliope. You meet Lily, who you find out played Lilith, um, and and uh, had had a relationship of some sort with Tilly. Yeah, that, um, that's and, I and think so- the notable way that the play ends uh, is discovering the friends that Tilly had made as part of this D&D campaign. Really, um, Agnes meets the enemies, the the bad guys and villains that are in the D&D campaign all through the script. But kind of the resolution to the play is her meeting several of the friends. Now, she meets the Lilith character who the Tilly character in the campaign is like in a relationship with. And then Agnes discovers that Lily was a real person who they had sort of a uh, Lily is much more in the closet than Tilly was and really could, did not want it to get out that she had feelings for a woman. So they were there. Their relationship was secret and clandestine, but very affectionate. And so that all happens throughout the course of the play. But really the capstone thing at the end of the play is Agnes meeting some of the real characters that, that are, and these are people who are sort of shunned by society for one reason or another, who through Tilly's guidance and leadership through this D&D campaign get to become powerful, influential characters in the module. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a fascinating, like, great way to use time um, to still capture that and still kind of provide a way for Agnes to find her sister through her sister's friends. Um, so, so it's just just fascinating to kind of see that sort of slowly come out in the midst of just a. Uh, just a romp <laughs> of a D&D campaign. Um, you, you get into the action of the, of, of the D&D campaign itself and you see just all of this um, great <laughs> learning happening for Agnes, um, whether it's uh, Chuck who is tr- trying to introduce her to how the game works or it's Tilly kind of showing her how her perception of the world works, how, she, how much she loves this stuff. So oftentimes Agnes will show up in a way that is not consistent with either the game or the way Tilly wants the game to work and Tilly like has okay since you're not taking this seriously you get to be a, uh, this person instead or you get to just have a lame weapon instead so so it's like uh, fascinating to kind of see um, Agnes learn this world with her sister for her sister while she's trying to find her sister as well and the, and the tension between the real world and the world of the campaign is is I mean it, it's so much of what the play is, of course. But I, I really like the way Kui Gwen sort of dismisses one of the, I would think, the more tropish, shallow ways the play could have gone very early in the script. I guess it's more like, it's closer to intermission, so it's about halfway through the script. But anyway, um, so Agnes is having this sort of intensive conversation with the Tilly character in the campaign, right, about how she never knew her, about how why they were never close, all these sort of bearing her soul to her sister in a way that she never got to do when she was alive. And the 
that, right, there's this actor playing Tilly across from her. So there's this tension theatrically of, like, that is a real actor, and the actor is already playing a fake character, but there's an additional level of fakeness, right, because it's also part of a D&D campaign. And fakeness is a loaded word. That's not really what I mean, but I just mean that's not the reality, both because it's an actor and because it's a false character within a D&D campaign. And so there is a possibility that the play could have headed in that direction, trying to resolve some pain in the relationship but with between Tilly and uh, between Agnes, I'm sorry, and a person who's passed because she can somehow live again in this module. But I really like the way Quiguin sort of sets that aside because in the middle of that, he has Chuck come back on stage and we realize Chuck is playing Tilly in this exchange yeah. because it's a D&D campaign. He's the dungeon master. That's an NPC, basically. Uh, or, or, you know, there's no actual person playing Tilly at the campaign. It's just Chuck playing all the rest of the characters. So he says, you know, I'm, I'm not really her. This is getting kind of uncomfortable. I can't yeah. play your dead sister in this therapeutic exchange for you. Yeah, that that's a fascinating moment where it kind of like, yeah, decouples it. There's a, there's a one point or another where Agnes says, "I'm I'm tired of sitting here talking to ghosts" or something like that, which is a powerful line. Um, but but that kind of like uh resets it just a little bit. Resets our you know a, a little bit of the 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 perception of us that that Tilly is actually there for Chuck to continually kind of come in and be like, you know, I'm really game to do this, but we're getting into some zones yeah. <laughs> that that you know you're just talking to me. Um, and and and, uh, and so it's it's just this fascinating element to kind of bring us back in and kind of name the kind of uh, the oddity of it, the 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 way that and the way that the oddity can still bring her closer to the story that Agnes wrote, but maybe not the person, or I'm sorry, the story that Tilly wrote, but maybe not the person of Tilly anymore. Right, because really the way that Agnes grows closer to this memory of her sister is by meeting the real people that are still alive and present, right? She meets Lily. She meets the other characters in that kind of heartwarming capstone scene where she sees the impact that Tilly has had on these people in her life. And that's where the true character movement growth uh, happens not between Agnes and this ghost character played by Chuck. I mean, the truth is this this plays about that person being dead. They're they're gone, yeah. and it's about Agnes finding a way to deal with that hole in her life. And I think there there could have been a badder, a worse version of this play <laughs> where she fills it with this ghost person that's in this campaign. But no, that's not how it works out. She resolves. Quigwen leads us through a journey of her meeting real humans who, through their memories of her sister, real memories, she's able to 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 take some step forward. Which is backed up consistently in the play and kind of hinted at in a very D&D-esque way throughout the play because Tilly is not all that she seems in the play. Tilly has these scenes where she, um, you know, behaves in, in, in maybe inconsistent ways sometimes. There's a, there's a... <laughs> She she casts a spell um, that, a, that her type of character in D&D has no access to, so that's kind of like a little hint that she casts magic missile at something, but her character wouldn't have access to it. And it turns out in the end of the play that she shapeshifts into the main boss of the bat of the final battle. She shapeshifts into the five or oh boy, the five headed dragon Tiamat. And yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> if you see all the uh, pretty much all the posters and covers have the dragon on it because it's yep, yep. very D&D reminiscent. 
Exactly. And 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 so Agnes is kind of forced to fight that. And it's only after that has been fought that Tilly comes out and says, you know, did you enjoy it? Did you have fun? And then you kind of get into the the, uh, the the real grief of Agnes. She says, wait, you're not real. You're gone. And Tilly st- says, but this, this story remains. Um, and so the story that that is there is kind of what is left for Agnes of Tilly, um, even as she has to kind of get through the losing of the character that she's created, the story is still there. But I, I think that, like, I think there's some potential to read that line as if that's supposed to be the resolution, right? Well, you have this story that I created to remember me by, but I really don't, I think that is not at the core what this play is about or even what Agnes discovers, right? It's. I think it's as the line continues that you see the more valuable thing that Agnes gains access to, the collection of stories. This is just one yeah. of Tilly's stories, but what Agnes gains access to are the all the real humans who were part of Tilly's life and their stories and the stories that they're going to make together. Of course, the end of the play is that Agnes goes on to do more D and, you know, she, she sort of gains this group of friends and, and, and a new perspective on her life. So she goes on to many more adventures or however the narrator puts it at the end. But that idea that, that life is a collection, a group of things all brought together. Um, because I think this, this play would ring sort of hollow if the idea at the end were like, you can replay the module if you you want to hang out with your sister again. I mean, right. <laughs> that's just not, this is about Agnes discovering all the things around Tilly that show her who her sister was, that let her get closer to the memory, that helped to deal with that hole that was left. Yeah, yeah, fill in the empty space. There's a lot of talk about, you know, however old Agnes is than Tilly, about her just kind of forgetting Tilly, or at least Tilly feeling that way. Um, and so whether Agnes, Agnes, well, we don't we don't have to say whether Agnes feels that or not. I think we can just give the opinion that, that Agnes feels that and goes back to find her again and goes back to find more about her again. And and yeah, the filling in of that space for her um, has... has uh, uh, necessary outcomes and kind of beauty and consistent re-engagement with story in general and people in general connects her again to those people that were around Tilly and provides a way forward for her, a way to move into, um, e- even into, you know, health with Miles, into health with her relationships. Um, the, the, the Galadriel-esque Lord of the Rings narrator comes on at the end and says, and everything turned out more or less okay. Um, I wonder how so, much yeah. you could get away with in a production of this play, just open like satirizing right. Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> How far could you go before people were like, oh, that might be copyrighted. <laughs> There's 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 a good chunk of that in here. I I, I don't think of of the many plays I've read, there are not so often so many like little footnotes in the bottom saying, just to be clear, you don't have the rights to this. Yeah. Music oh my gosh, they're the everywhere. It's like every other page. They're like, we don't, we can't promise that you'll be able to play that song. We can't right. promise that you can actually put that character on stage. <laughs> Yep, it's it's good and stuff. Speaking of that, it just in terms of like what is being asked of companies in this script to put on stage, this is a 
uh, highly fantastical show where what the theatricalizing of the D&D fantasy battles, spells, swords, armor, uh, all of this stuff that takes place within the campaign is largely left up to the production companies to figure out how and what that is going to look like. I mean, this script, it does not, I don't, I don't think Kui Gwyn has done a lot to imagine for you how you could create a theatrical representational experience of all this stuff. He's simply written the actions out on the page and said, yep, there's a gal in armor and there's a dragon and they've got to have, this is a quote from the stage directions, the greatest fight ever to be seen on the theatrical stage. I love that. So, you know, hey, it's in your hands now, is, is my sense, at least, of the, the the way that the stage directions and the, the imagining of the fantasy elements comes to be. That's such an exciting part of it. As someone who's done a little bit of stage combat, I choreographed stage combat a little while, um, it's always so nice <laughs> to read a play from someone who actually knows something about stage combat. Because <laughs> it's not just like, you know, they fight or something. <laughs> Like, he he names the, like, compelling action of the fight and what must happen, and he doesn't over-prescribe as well or cause something um, to, to, to be there that maybe is impossible for a given house to pull off. You know, even though that, 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 that stage direction you read is, is, a, is a high goal to try to meet, it's, it's, it's that production's goal to meet. Um, so it doesn't, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have, like, I think, I think the last scene calls for the five-headed dragon to appear and a lot of smoke and stuff like that. Um, you you get to figure out how to do that as a production company and leave the door open to a lot of great stuff. The the play has a lot of great stage combat. There's there's quite a bit of death in in quite the play as yeah, yeah, as yeah. is appropriate for a D&D game. Um, there's this great character of adventurer Steve who comes on <laughs> And just <laughs> almost every time they go up to one of the boss fights, Adventurer Steve shows up first, and the boss either just kicks him out or kills him very quickly. <laughs> In some specific, uh, odd, odd, oddly hard to pull off way. Like, if you right. just took all the ways that Adventurer Steve dies and said to your production <laughs> team, we got to make all this happen, I think they'd be like, whoa, I, uh, I don't know if we yep. can do all this <laughs> in the course yep. of our five weeks of rehearsal. His throat gets pulled out his heart gets pulled out he gets <laughs> swallowed into a glob of slime i mean boy you know, there's a lot I'd, that happens to that poor dude it's true and probably the most like the, mo- the of those right you know <laughs> if any of you are stage choreographers out there or fight choreographers out there you're going okay i could maybe do that the one that like Ends him for the last time. He comes on. Agnes thinks he's a shape-changed, shape-changed dragon and throws a knife at his head and he dies. <laughs> Choreograph that. <laughs> um, that. It's that sort of like delightful push-the-envelope sort of uh, stage combat that like really makes it, it, it exciting to read and, and, and I imagine super exciting to see too. Yeah, well, and it's uh, it's sort of intimidating. I mean, you know, I'm a director more than anything else, and it's like you got the script, and you're like, "Whoa, I don't know." <laughs> that's a that's a lot. That's a lot to ask of me and my team to try to to create. The because I think what it is is that the sense of the action and the fantasy elements in the stage directions is so 
beautiful and cinematic and engaging that the idea of transferring that somehow onto the theatrical stage is a little intimidating. And yet, as you noted in the context, this play is done so much. Yeah, it's and it's done in a lot of educational settings quite a bit too, which is a you know a group that is eager to leap into that sort of uh, the sort of work that is needed for that, right? The sort of uh, choreography that's needed for that, the sort of you know large casts of people <laughs> who can who can come on as kobolds or as goblins or whatever. Um, uh, so so yeah, it's got that kind. Of, it does have that somewhat. Um, like kick the ball down the field and see how you run and get it sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but that sort of challenge is really interesting, I think, for a lot of uh, educational uh, theater and also just regional houses to try to pull off. And it, it ends up being um, s- sort of effective for the actual script. Like the, the way that Queen Gwyn has written the battles and the fantasy elements and all this is so... Uh, just like so well narrated in the stage directions. It's present tense. It's simple but clear. It's uh, very, very descriptive. For example, um, uh, Tiamat snaps at her. She uses her shield from being bitten, but as soon as she gets occupied fighting one head, another slings in and strikes her in the ribs. I mean, I don't know exactly how I would stage that if I didn't have the enormous Broadway budget for a huge dragon puppet and all of the <laughs> cool things that you could potentially do with lots of money. But assuming I didn't have that, I don't know exactly what I would do. I, mean, I have some imaginings, I guess. But just reading it, it's a, it's a very engaging read in that way. Yeah, it's true. And and each of the scenes are are encountered by Agnes in really real ways. Like we've we've just, you know, talked about a pretty fantastical set of characters, a pretty fantastical set of of encounters that they come up against and Agnes approaches these in a very <laughs> real way. Um the the one of the early ones is like uh large bugbears come in and start fighting her in the middle of an office meeting. Um and she's like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> and has to try to like and we're quickly brought into the world where she's back at the table. Uh Chuck is like running this combat encounter for her and we slowly see her start to warm up to the world and it's not really all the way to the end when she's fighting the dragon that we see her really comfortable with with the way that this this story is being told. Um the other one that that really brings her out of her comfort zone is Miles as the gelatinous cube. <laughs> um <laughs> that like she she refuses to fight him for a while and then he ends up turning shapeshifts again. There's a lot of shapeshifting in the play. Um and and yeah, it's just really interesting to watch Agnes's journey w- told through the combat of the play as well. Yeah. No, I I totally agree, and it it, it it ends up paying off, I think, in what I can only... I mean, I've never seen this play. I watched some clips in preparation. I've seen sort of the various levels that different production companies can achieve, but I think one thing that seemed consistent, at least in the clips, I recognize that it's not the same as seeing a whole production, but one thing that always seems true is that because... Dungeons and Dragons is an imaginative game to begin with. There, the the room for what you can ask of the audience imaginatively is is pretty broad. Um, I, like I think this would be much harder in the context of a video game, 
right? Where video games create everything in such highly uh, gorgeous, um, and even if they're simple graphics, right, they're sort of fully imagined visual worlds. That's sort of characteristic of a video game or, or cinematic, right? Or, or even to some degree, if she were just reading a book that you'd sort of want to create a whole world visually and, and, and sort of fill in all the gaps that you can. But because D&D is sort of a, like I would call it sort of a dark matter game, right? In the sense that there's a lot of room. Yeah. There's a lot of sort of nebulousness to what D&D is that I think that leaves a lot of doorways open for how this thing becomes uh, something that is phys- physical and visceral and present in the space on stage. Which is really fascinating to watch through stagecraft. Um, so, so like over and over the scene shifts seamlessly. Um, I don't, I, I would be a hard put to find the spot where the act break is. If there is one, um, everything moves so fluidly through quick light changes, um, through, uh, uh, like conversations will stop, um, sort of mid conversation and things will focus in on two characters. And by the time we arrive back outside of that scene, the characters that were there are now gone. So there's a lot of that sort of fluid moving through light, moving through dark matters and other like dark matter exercises or something like that is a great way to explain it of like, we're just like forming something new really fluidly. And now we're here. Now we're doing the thing. Um, the, the way that it, that, that it fluidly moves through draws us into that imaginative state as well. Even, even so much that we can move fluidly between we're in the game, we're out, out of the game in the living, room we're in the school we're back in the game like that that sort of like very quick movement from place to place can only be accomplished through some uh, really imaginative work um that both the playwright has done and the production team has done well and it, it I, I think what what's so captivating to me about this idea is that um how do i put this okay i'll just say it this way D is theater like period there's, yep. there's no audience necessarily. So in that way, I mean, I think at some level theater requires there to be an audience for it to be an art and not a game. So D&D is like the game version of theater. It's, it's pretend. It is playing a character. And so unlike a book or a video game or a movie or a painting, which exists in and of themselves, I mean, even a book where the word, the action only takes place in your imagination, there's a page, there's things written on a page. A D&D campaign is not a fully created piece of a thing. It has to be played out with characters in the moment, making choices for, for it to actually be what it is. And that is exactly, I mean, exactly what theater is and why it's been an art form that's been around since the dawn of human beings, right? Is the idea that things happen only in the moment with people present making decisions. And so I, I think what works about this as a as a, a play about D&D, which might not work as a play about a video game, is that D&D and theater share in common the idea that it only happens in the present. It only happens in your imagination and in the relationships of the people as you make choices. 
Which ties again back to the theme that we mentioned earlier about the journey of Agnes and Tilly. It is an in-the-moment thing. You don't go back yes. and play the module yes. again. <laughs> um, you you experience it once, and and it's and it's meaningful, and it fills in. In Agnes's case, it fills in the gap that was left there to some degree, not to the fullest degree, but to some degree, she has learned a significant thing about her sister. And now you and now you go out, having been changed by the experience, um, but. But you don't, you don't, yeah, you don't play it over again. You don't get lost in in the repetition of it, um, because that's not the point. The point is you experience something together, learn something new about each other, and now go out and do more things. Um, so yeah, I agree that 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 the 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 apparatus by which uh, the play uses D and D to tell that story um, leans into that overall theme for Agnes and for Tilly. Um, as as they try to as well, really as as Agnes tries to find a way forward out of the experience, yeah, and and as we mentioned in the context section, like so many different strands of this play have come into being, right? There's like, um, I mean, I'm not going to get the names exactly right, but there's she kills monsters, like young adventurers, young explosive. yeah, young adventurers edition, yeah. So that's like. I would imagine, although I have not read the Young Adventures edition, so I'm just speaking out of ignorance here. But I would imagine, I, I will say that the She Kills Monster script, as it's you know in its regular edition, I guess, uh, has some sexual content um, that I would imagine is cut from the Young Adventures edition as yeah, one of the things bit. I would think. Um, right. Uh, so so stuff like that, right? It's it's made for high schoolers, middle school, you know, a younger group to be able to access some of the content. There's a Virtual Realms edition, which is designed to transmit this story and method into an online theater format. And so one of the things that's interesting about this play is is why has it become the cultural phenomenon that it is? It is, yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think partially, um, uh, it, it has something to do with the uh, acceptance of geek culture into the cultural vernacular. Boy, um, this is this... messing with me because I just watched Nightmare Alley, and, and this is a, it's a total <laughs> side tangent. But Nightmare Alley is about <laughs> geeks too, but like carnival geeks who are like oh, eating sure. live animals. So saying geek today is just this is I'm just bringing myself to the table. It's messing with me right now. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. Like a lot, it's it's made its way into a lot of popular culture. Um, you know, a lot of the people who you know made it through this time of pretty like the play is set in 1995, which means the events of the play or the events of at least uh, Tilly's life is back. You know, at least a couple years from 1995, which is the height of when geeks were made fun of a lot. A lot of those people, you know, they make it through and they grow up and they have made um popular culture what it is now. And so there is this sense. Of, of greater access to things like Dungeons and Dragons, to comics, to um, all these sorts of uh, expressions of geek culture um, that are now part of the cultural vernacular. So, so people are much are, are both nostalgic for that experience and how it got them through some of those really hard times of their childhood. And also there's a whole new echelon of people who are moving into that realm and willing to experience the same things kind of at the feet of some of these people who have, who can now teach it and pass it on. So this play kind of hits on some of those resonant themes, I think of the greater culture and, and, and offers some representation for people who lived through a lot of stuff, a lot of bullying, a lot of ostracizing and, and can kind of find, find themselves in these characters. 
Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things, and I don't exactly know how the play would have been experienced 10 years ago. Uh, but, you know, it, it's like you say, it's a play about the, the 90s. And so the culture around comic books, superheroes, imaginative play, D&D, fantasy, that kind of stuff was just so different. But it's interesting reading this play now that I, I, I'm not sure... I'm not sure how to feel about Agnes. I mean, from the beginning hmm. of the play, her distaste for, uh, like, fa- her sister's love of fantasy stuff, uh, of stories about monsters and wizards and swords and that kind of stuff, her distaste for that just doesn't... R- I don't know if it was ever intended to be like we were supposed to be on her side. Like, oh, yeah, I also have distaste for all that. I get that your sister's a weirdo and you wouldn't want anything to do... I mean, that's just not the experience <laughs> I have reading this play, perhaps just because I'm a huge nerd. But right. I also think, like you say, though, right? Nerd geek culture has become popular culture. So was the original intent of this play that we were supposed to be on Agnes's side of the Tilly Agnes culture divide or are we supposed to from the beginning more identify because Tilly is a, m- a better representation of popular culture now with Tilly and then we empathize with Agnes just because she loses her family I'm just not sure the play has, has gone through a major shift in culture even since it came out yeah, well, I wonder if that's part of why it still remains so accessible to so many audiences. Because even like there, there is, there's, there is. Well, well, it may not be the over, you know, the overwhelming cultural opinion. There's still the cultural opinion that wait, you you all gather together and tell stories around a table and just imagine things together. Um, so like, so there's still that that sort of I, thing out there. I so don't know. I mean, some people I, still yeah. feel that way, but. I think a lot of people nowadays have played D&D that never would have even 10 years ago. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, no, it certainly re- experienced some sort of reson- uh, re- not resonance, a uh, renaissance there. Um, but it's I, I think Agnes still draws in a crowd who maybe hasn't jumped on the train yet, or who who uh, hasn't necessarily experienced it. Is curious about it. Clearly, Agnes is curious about it. She wouldn't have like showed up to a high schooler in a game store and said, "Can you run this module that my sister wrote?" If she wasn't at least initially some curious had some curiosity about it, and then draws them in, all while still claiming with everything else in the play that there is that this culture has so much to give that this culture has so much resonance and meaning for the characters who decide to commit to it so so i think i think in some ways agnes serves as a little bit of a hand out to those uh who haven't experienced uh maybe to the full extent geek and nerd culture to say come on in with me because i'm experiencing it as your every person and i'm willing to uh to wade into it <laughs> and and figure out what it's about yeah, well, I I think that could totally be true. I also wonder, and I don't, this may be too shallow a reading, but I wonder if Agnes's immediate, um, I mean, immediate in terms of that's the way she's at the start of the play, what I feel like is an overly strong reaction against Tilly's love of fantasy culture. Wow, my sister's such a weirdo because she likes, and again, I, I recognize that it's set in the 90s, but it didn't come out in the 90s. You know, I mean, it's right. plays are written for the now, even if they're about the then, right? So, although it's set in the '90s, it's not about the '90s, or it's not a it's not a play for the '90s. And so, I, I just so here's what I'm saying: I wonder if Agnes's 
the obvious, I think an attitude that obviously needs to change from the beginning. I think that's the question for me. Is it an attitude that see, is supposed to seem reasonable at the beginning or is it an attitude that obviously needs to change? And if it's supposed, if it's intended as an attitude that obviously needs to change at the beginning of the play, how does that relate to the fact that this is also a play about LGBTQ people? Is, is there a metaphor being made about the way that Agnes' obvious, way too uh, strongly held reaction about the, what Tilly enjoys fantasy-wise and sort of the, the, the broader cultural bullying and rejection, as we've seen from these high schools that have shut down this production, is still a relevant problem, the way that the, the mistreatment of LGBTQ people. Is that a very shallow metaphor? Maybe, and I appreciate Queen Gwyn as a playwright too much to think that was maybe the intention, but I don't know. I, just, I think that's where I'm curious. Is it supposed to be an attitude that seems reasonable from her, the way she feels about Tilly's nerd culture, or is it supposed to seem unreasonable? I, the, I think, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. There's certainly scenes uh, right right in the core of it where Agnes finds out that that Tilly is gay and and has this kind of breakdown moment where she is just floored by the the fact. There's there's a scene between her and Tilly where Tilly asks her, "Well, I never like what what's the problem? Why why are you why are you reacting this way um, to this?" And there's there's a lot of great questions asked in that scene. Agnes comes uh, to or states that she is more reacting to just that she didn't know that somehow um, that, that somehow she was this removed from her sister that she didn't know about it um, and so so it's certain but it's certainly like dealing with those themes and I wonder I wonder if if there isn't this kind of sense of watching Agnes move from a, a position of of uh, censure mean, she's judgmental, to something right it's, it doesn't yeah. just it doesn't just mm -hmm. feel like she just doesn't like Gandalf or whatever you know I, I'm not right. really into fantasy right it, it feels like she's actively judgmental and uh, too harsh with her teenage sister I mean that's at least my sense of it from the beginning of the play but I don't know is that just a change in culture over the 10 years the way we would experience how she treats her sister yeah, it, it, it certainly could be a change in culture, and it certainly could be just setting, kind of teeing up the change that she goes through um, till the end, because she, by the end of the play, she sees the error of her ways <laughs> um, and and engages wholeheartedly in it, even drawing Miles into it or allowing Miles to play um, uh, uh, in, in the same thing. So, so yeah, I, I, I think certainly sets her up for a journey, whether one way or another, whether, whether it's an obvious one of... Uh, you know, how could you ever have thought that or or a more subtle one of of maybe maybe there's a change that you could be open to and and experience something new. I think that's all the time we've got for She Kills Monsters. There is two other editions of this script. I, I don't think we have any sense that we're going to come back to the different versions, but who knows? Life is long. Maybe maybe no script will continue in, in, in forever, and we'll we'll run out of scripts. No, that will never happen. But right, good, right. Good, good conversation about a really really interesting play, a play that has swept the country. Hey, be on the lookout for the themed month coming up in just a few weeks. Four plays by David Henry Huang. We are excited about those conversations to come.
And we're excited about the conversations that we can continue to have in the online sphere. We'd love to keep talking about She Kills Monsters with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with all of you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please recommend us to your family, friends, anybody you know that likes theater, scripts, stories, literature, or just great conversations about art send them our way they can find us on podbean where we are hosted also on apple podcasts google play spotify or just like us on facebook you'll see a link every monday to the new episode as it comes out so until next week when we're talking about another play i am jackson nikolai i am jacob man christensen thanks for joining us for no script the podcast